0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Global worries reach an all-time high that America will default on its debt with devastating worldwide implications. House GOP leaders have blocked committees from marking up budgets. Military promotions remain blocked. The expiration of Title 42 is precipitating another border crisis. After a brutal year of fighting, Russia backed away from Bakhmut as infighting in the Kremlin surges, and Ukraine keeps everybody guessing about its long-awaited offensive as Britain sends precision cruise missiles to Kiev, and NATO details its spending plans. U.S. and Chinese top diplomats meet. China's data-sharing crackdown causes concern. Taiwan's new invasion fears and Quad leaders uh, are to meet. Syria returns to the fold as Israel strikes Islamic Jihad in Gaza and the 50th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and co hosts the Brussels Sprouse podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon comptroller Dr. Dub Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his very many affiliations. Uh, Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. A very big week uh, and unfortunately not as much time as I'd like for us to discuss this uh, as we have a fixed show. Michael, uh, start us off. uh, An amazing week. uh, Debt uh, Talks uh, have stalled. There are going to be more conversations next week. Uh, and that is going to be impacting defense spending, America's creditworthiness, And we're hearing increasingly from leaders around the world how problematic this is going to be. That doesn't seem to change anybody's course uh, in Washington. And again, in a new piece of gamesmanship, uh, the House GOP leadership uh, decided to instruct committees to indefinitely postpone uh, markup. Um, walk us through where we are and where we're going and what this all means.
1: You remember last week? You know, Treasury Secretary Yellen, you know, rocked the political and financial world when she announced that we could hit the X date for default as early as, as June first. As a result, President Biden called for a meeting of the Big Four uh, into his into the White House uh, on Tuesday, May 9th. Uh, however, you know, prior to that meeting, uh, both sides couldn't help but continue to play politics. So the White House uh, circulated a memo, you know, claiming uh, that the GOP spending cuts. Uh, would hurt the border by supercharging the fentanyl crisis. It would hurt veterans, policing. Uh, they started targeting uh, vulnerable uh, House Republicans in districts that uh, President Biden won. Uh, at the same time, uh, the campaign arm of House Republicans, the NRCC, sent, in my opinion, a very misguided email out to their supporters saying that President Biden is bending the knee and taking his first meeting uh, with Speaker McCarthy on debt ceiling negotiations. So all this you know, serves just to keep people's uh, backs up. Now, what's what really significant, too, about this meeting on May 9th that happened on Tuesday, which is not getting a lot of uh, coverage, is that this is the first time that President Biden has met with McCarthy, Jeffries, Schumer, and McConnell in the same room in their current roles, right? Now, remember, Biden was elected as the guy who's supposed to be a uniter, a healer, a return to normalcy, uh, and there's plenty of things that those leaders could have been talking about over the last you know uh, third, of the, third of the year, including the debt, uh, but, uh, the border crisis, Uh, support for Ukraine, the threat we face with China, trying to stem a banking crisis. And these are this issue is not only going to bite Biden on the debt, but it's going to bite him on these other issues as as well. Uh, So, you know, the the meeting uh, took place uh, and there was not uh, a lot of progress. Uh, And In fact, um, there was a lot of politics in that meeting as well. Biden accused McCarthy uh, during the meeting of cutting veterans funding by 22 percent. And his people know that's not true. The Republicans have come out saying they're not going to cut defense, they're not going to cut uh, funding for the border, and they're not going to cut uh, veterans. So the meeting only lasted an hour, and you know, raised alarm bells afterwards, where Biden even said that he was considering and invoking uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, which states that the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned, you know, as a means to avoid uh, a default, but then also cast doubt on it, saying that it would um, end up in the courts. Now we also the timeline is passing by very quickly because there's just four legislative days left uh, that both chambers are going to be uh, in session. Now, on the bright side, after the meeting, um, the uh, the big the big you know everybody agreed that their staff would would talk. So on Wednesday uh, there were uh, meetings um, among uh, the staff that lasted about two hours. Uh, there were meetings on um, on Thursday that lasted about another two hours. Now, there's supposed to be a meeting on Friday, as you, as you mentioned, again, with Biden and, and the big four. However, uh, that meeting has been canceled. Uh, but instead, the staff is going to continue to meet because the staff's really in the opening stages of this. They haven't really exchanged uh, any paper on this. They're trying to feel each other out as to where uh, they can find some agreement uh, on, on some cuts. Uh, but I just think, you know, if we were at this stage back in February, March, I think people would be feeling pretty optimistic. However, you know, we have about 20 days left until we're gonna hit uh, uh, default and we're still at the table setting stage uh, of these discussions. So you know, they're, they're narrowing down uh, the policies, things like permitting reform, they might have some uh, agreement on spending caps uh, for discretionary spending, uh, rescinding uh, unspent uh, COVID funds, um, but you know, one of the bigger obstacles now that has emerged is the length of the deal. The, the White House would really like to have a two-year deal, not just to raise the debt ceiling, but also on imposing caps on discretionary spending. Uh, the Republicans want a 10-year deal on imposing caps on discretionary spending. And this is going to be very hard uh, to overcome. Uh, and also, you know, it takes a week to get something through the Senate at least. It's going to take a week to get a bill through the House. Uh, So a deal would really need to be in place over the next few days in order to pass Congress by by June 1st, uh, which is why I still believe that we're gonna have a a clean extension of 30 days in order to give them uh, the the time to get this done. Um, Now, as you mentioned, the implications for defense are are very serious. Uh, you know, uh, have indefinitely delayed the markups on the National Defense Authorization Act in the House. They were scheduled to mark up in subcommittee yesterday and today. Uh, Those have been indefinitely postponed. The full committee markup on the 23rd has been postponed uh, indefinitely. And the Appropriations Committee was going to mark up uh, their defense bill next week. That has also been uh, indefinitely postponed. However, I am hearing rumors this morning that there is a possibility that next week the House might mark up their um, homeland uh, bill and their Milcon VA bill, just to show that they're not going to be cutting uh, funds from those areas to take away uh, those talking points from the Democrats. Uh, but another thing I'm very really concerned about in these discussions is the talk of another caps deal, you know, circa uh, BCA back in 2011. Right. Because any caps on discretionary spending will impact defense. Even if they're not going to uh, cut defense, it will. Uh, uh, squelch the growth of defense every year. And my guess would be we would not be able to keep up with inflation, which in itself would be a cut. Uh, and of course, you know, military leaders have been on the Hill this week reminding people what the default would mean to defense, uh, including, you know, enabling China and, you know, hampering our ability to pay troops, pay contractors. So this uh, continues to be, you know, very serious and the clock continues to tick.
0: Let me, um, let me uh, go to, before I go to Dove, um, do you think that we eventually get to a deal uh, given that at least both sides are talking and staffs uh, are engaged uh, because right, Donald Trump now is weighed in. Hey, let's default. And I'm sorry, we've been talking about debt uh, issues consistently for the entire time this show has been meeting. And there was the consensus that Republicans have a tendency of caring about the debt only if there's a Democrat sitting in the White House. That's the situation we have. And Donald Trump with a, you know, pretty much said that in his town hall meeting. Well, I wasn't president then. At the time, I thought it should be a clean debt increase, but now I think it should be a political uh, football. And unfortunately, where he goes, the party follows. Does this get resolved and do comments from him change the outcome of this or complicate things, Michael? And then, uh, Dove, I want to get to you about what this
1: practically means for the department. So last week you asked if, if we were going to default and I said every week my answer will change, right? So, or may, my change. This week I still don't believe we're going to default and I still think we are going to come up with a deal. I just don't think there'll be a deal by June 1st, which is why I still think we're going to have a short-term extension. And I don't think um, the clown show of the former president uh, is relevant yet at this stage, right? I mean, there, there's probably, uh, regardless of what the president says, you know, 15 to 20 Republicans in the House that don't care if we default. Uh, and I don't understand what a default really means, but the vast majority of Republicans and an overwhelming majority of the Democrats, if not all of them, uh, do not want to see a default. So I've always said where there's a will, there's a way. And I, I think the deal will, will be struck. From your mouth to
0: God's ears, uh, as they say, tough. As a former uh, Pentagon comptroller, what's going through Mike McCord's mind uh, right now as he watches this? Because a debt default has implications across government, right? Nobody can pay their bills and it has a cascading effect. What is going on in the department at this point? If anything, because administrations have a way of whistling past graveyards to say, hey, look, my guidance is not to prepare for anything else, but business is is, as usual.
2: Well, um, Mike uh, McCord is not the type of guy who whistles past graveyards, so let's be clear about that. Um, first of all, even if there's a kind of default, and, and I'm with, uh, with Mike Hurston on this, I, I think this is somehow going to get resolved. But even if there was a default, the real issue is um, we'll be able to pay some things, but I don't think defense is going to be high on the priority list. So that gives uh, McCord a headache right there. The other thing is that apart from the debt discussion, there's this question still of whether there'll be a CR uh, and how long this concurrent resolution will run and the dangers that we face. uh, Because on the one hand, we really have to replenish what we've been sending over to the Ukrainians. On the other hand, We've got to stay ahead of the Chinese who are working as hard as they can to catch up with us and technically. And if you're in a continuing resolution, unless there's a, a, va- a, a literally a, a, a ton of exemptions, you can't start anything new. And so uh, that I think gives McCord a much greater, et cetera and headache, frankly, than even the debt problem. And so yes, uh, everybody's focusing on the debt ceiling, but, the, uh, but particularly for DOD, the question is, are we going to be stuck with an extended CR or uh, will it be roughly short term, which uh, DOD has learned to live with over the years?
0: Um, in uh, indeed, uh, let me uh, take you to another sort of cross-cutting issue, uh, Michael. Uh, right, because everything impacts everything else. In in Washington, we have Title Forty Two uh, expiring uh, or expired uh, last night. Right, There is expected to be more chaos at the border beyond the fifteen hundred active duty troops uh, that are being sent there. Tommy Tuberville has uh, continues his hold uh, on military promotions. Both of these are kind of thorny issues that nobody really knows how they get resolved right senators are allowed to put holds on people and so he can have a hold and then you have to vote on each one individually so that becomes kind of a catastrophe especially as you said you got four days left uh at least in this uh session uh before they they go away and then uh you have the 42 issue where uh you know neither side's approaches are particularly workable and we need a more structural solution. Even though I think the administration has done some pretty good things, there's a lot more work uh, to be done on this to have a more sort of substantive uh, solution. Um, You know, how do we, how do you resolve both of these issues ultimately?
1: Look, um, again, I think um, we've lost precious time uh, on the first issue, which is on the border, which really, I think is something that should have been dealt with earlier this year, uh, knowing that Title 42 eventually was going to expire. I mean, remember, Title 42 is a section of the, the Public Health Service Act of 1944, uh, which allows the government to stop the entry of people uh, into this country during a pandemic, to stop the you know, communicable disease from, from spreading. Now, the pandemic uh, emergency is lifted, so you know, so will Title 42. Um, but, you know, the, the rule really let border officials skip the time consuming steps involved in processing migrants and let them turn them away you know uh, very quickly. Now there'll be a prolonged administrative process that's going to lead to migrants staying in holding facilities much longer. And those facilities are going to reach maximum capacity very quickly. So we're going to see migrants and, you know, suffering in inhumane conditions and crowding under bridges and and living in outside shelters. Um. Now, to the GOP's credit in the House, they tried to pass a bill earlier this year and just couldn't get agreement on it, but they did pass a bill uh, yesterday. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a you know, laundry list of things that they were looking to get, right? I mean, from restarting construction on the, on the border wall and restrictions on asylum seekers, but they really struggled with language on E-Verify, you know, which is a program that allows employers to check on the immigration status of workers and their affiliation to Mexican drug cartels. And a lot of members of Congress who represent agricultural states were opposed to that language because they're afraid about the impact on it. And, you know, in the end they did, um, you know, uh, modify that language. But again, that shows, the 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 flaw in our approach to all this. We need more workers in this country, not just in the agricultural sector, but right. also for the construction uh, sector. I talked to a member of Congress yesterday uh, from the South. It says a lot of the construction workers also would not be able to meet this, um, and also in the hotel and hospitality industry, and also our legal immigration is, is suffering. I mean, we have a huge nursing shortage in this country. One out of six nurses in this country is an immigrant, and we also are not allowing new work visas for nurses to come into this country to address uh, that shortage. So this is something that needs be taken seriously. It needs leadership from the top, and we're just not getting it right now. Um, I also think there also was one more change, too, that uh, Congressman Crenshaw from Texas and others wanted these cartels listed as foreign terrorist organizations, uh, but the Freedom Caucus objected to that because they felt that people could use that uh, for asylum seekers, so that uh, was modified as well. Uh, Now, the issue with with Tupperville is a completely uh, different different problem, uh, and that continues to get more and more serious. Uh, now, we mentioned a week or two ago that Elizabeth Warren had written a letter to uh, Secretary Austin uh, to asking about the impact on this. And Austin sent her back a very strong uh, letter talking about the self-inflicted harm that we're Im- imposing on ourselves here. And and also, millie has been up on the Hill testifying, too, that between 3,000 and 4,000 people are affected by the impasse. It's Because it's not just the 200 people that are, promotion is being held up. It's also their families uh, that are being impacted. And, you know, in Austin's letter, you know, he said, the department has 64 three or four-store nominations pending for positions due to rotate within the next 120 days. And these include the chief of staff of the Army, the chief of staff of Naval, uh, chief of Naval Operations, the commandant and assistant commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, the director of NSA, uh, the commander of U.S. Cyber Command, and the commander of, of NORTHCOM, right? And in and, and the next nine months, we're going to have 80 three or four-star rotations uh, uh, across the department. And these include the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the vice uh, chief of staff of the Army, the vice chief of staff of the Air Force. Right. And in total, we're looking at 650 flag officers that will quiet Senate confirmation machine now and, and the end of the year. Um, now, Tupperville continues to double down. Mitch McConnell, who's the Menard leader, came out saying he opposes what um, Tupperville is doing. And uh, Tupperville was asked about this by reporters, says everybody's got their own opinion. Uh, and then he was reminded that McConnell is the leader. And he says, not on this one. He says, you know, I am uh, on this. Uh, so, look, there's really, no, there's really no good answer here. I mean, the, the, the hold is really looked at as a courtesy to senators. and It's, it's, it's held almost in high, as high esteem as the filibuster. It would be considered a nuclear option to break through. Um, the, the majority leader does have the option to do so. However, um, that they would not be able to get unanimous consent to package all these together. And I'm not an expert in in Senate procedure, but I think that they would end up having to vote on these one at a time, which would include, which would eat up an enormous amount of Senate floor time. So there is a way out of this, but it would include the Senate spending a great deal of time in Washington knocking through these one at a time.
0: A quick word uh, from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE aerospace sponsors uh, our air and naval warfare uh, coverage. Uh Dove, I'm gonna go to you, Jim. Patrick, thanks very much for being patient. Uh, and I just want to really quickly ask: there's been some new polling that suggests the American public support for Ukraine and is its lowest level uh, in a year. It comes as Donald. Trump has returned to the electoral stage um, and, and you know sort of questioning uh, Ukraine uh, again, he had much applause during that CNN town hall uh, meeting. Um, from, from your standpoint, how strong is uh, continued support uh, for Ukraine? Um, is, is, it, is it time to start worrying about it or is this something that there is enough consensus on at this point from your perspective?
2: I think uh, the time to worry is uh, once the Ukrainians actually mount their counteroffensive. And the reason I say that, I was just talking today to a very senior uh, British official. The concern is everybody's played this up. Like, you know, you you get the impression that next thing you know, they're going to launch the counteroffensive and the day after that, they'll be in Crimea kicking the Russians out. Right. Uh, And that's not going to be the way it works. And it seems to me that if, uh, first of all, there needs to be a real effort on the part of the administration to tone down expectations. I think they're starting to do that. They need to do a lot more, uh, but ultimately, whether the public will support more aid for Ukraine, I think is going to depend on how the Ukrainians do in this counteroffensive. offensive. Uh, if it, it stalls, I think people are going to say, why are we throwing money at these guys? If it's successful, uh, then uh, and somewhat more is needed in order to finally get Putin to the table, I think there will be support. Uh, and remember, when we say support is declining, it's still pretty high. I mean, compare the support for Ukraine, to say the support for Trump and Biden. Uh, and so, you know, again, Americans tend not to focus on foreign affairs, uh, but they seem to be focusing a lot more on Ukraine than they normally do on other issues. Uh, and I would say that probably there's
0: nothing new to report. So Americans have a tendency of being like, well, well the action is not really moving on the field, right? So they have a tendency of being like, well, you know, we'll pay attention to it when we pay attention to it. And obviously, there have been shootings and a whole bunch of other things that have been uh, in the headlines. Jim, uh, you've been uh, very patient Um you know, the uh, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, uh, Army General Chris Cavoli, uh, somebody who is one of uh, the deepest experts on the Russian uh, military, somebody who's a fluent, uh, Russian speaker. Uh, you know, every once in a while, the right people are at the right jobs at the right time. And, and he's uh, one of those people. Rob Bauer, the chairman of the NATO Military Committee, is another one of those people. Um, um, walk us through um, the alliance, you know, what, what uh, General Cavoli disclosed in terms of uh, nato defense planning the drive for more money the vilnius summit is in uh, july so it's a little bit early to be discussing that but still what are some of the interesting elements of his statements that that you think are most newsworthy because we were exchanging texts before this and you said this is a big deal and it's a big deal
3: well uh, thanks vago L- let me uh, jump jump back into the what, what you and uh, and um, dove were just talking about in terms of the poll and just to say that you know you can't conduct a military operations by poll you just can't uh the, and as you both talked about there's reasons why that poll goes up and goes down uh and so we're in a in a down spot right now and I think a lot of it is due to what you were just saying Vago you know there's just it's, Ukraine hasn't been in the news uh to a, to the point where it, it attracts attention from the person in the street and uh and uh and so uh, but at the same time you know the administration, I'm hoping, uh, will continue to do the right thing, no matter what the polls are saying. Uh, we've got to prosecute this war uh, the way it's got to be done professionally. And we, we just we can't let the polls have undue influence. So I'll just put it that way. Um, I, in terms of what uh, the SACU um, has just uh, said, uh, you know, this was this was a statement coming after a meeting of all the Chods yesterday. Uh, all the chiefs of defense met. They usually do that before um, uh, defense ministers meetings or or before a summit. And and we're starting to get this drumbeat now from the NATO military authorities that they're going to announce something at Vilnius in terms of this planning that they've been doing since Madrid, uh, of the type of planning that we haven't done since the Cold War, frankly, which is giving uh, specific assignments to allies in terms of numbers of forces, readiness of forces, types of equipment. And where it's going to be deployed along the frontier with Russia. So so in, you know at Madrid, it was all aspirational, where the Allies said, we're going to have to put NATO forces along the border. We can't just sit back in in a and and back in our concern, you know, and and wait for something to happen. We need to be up on the front line, and we need to be there with a readiness, and we need to be there with the numbers that it will take to meet what our new definition of deterrence is. And that is, Uh, You know, we're going to punish uh, you if you try to cross that line. Um, It's going to be deterrence by denial. Uh, And so uh, the military authorities have been planning, they've come up with this probably a very detailed and massive plan. But the issue now that is, will allies put the money towards fulfilling that plan? Uh, You can do a great plan, but if, but so if forces aren't there, then uh, then you're not going to be able to execute. And we're going to have to watch for that at Vilnius. Vilnius is going to have to tell us whether allies are, in fact, are going to put the money down or not.
0: I, I want to uh, ask you about uh, the uh, Russian Bakbo uh, offensive, uh, which has stalled, and obviously some of the messaging we saw uh, at the Victory Day parade with only one uh, World War II-era T-34 uh, tank uh, in presence, although Putin did show up in person. I want to ask you about Britain's decision uh, to send the Storm Shadow Precision uh, long-range cruise missile uh, to uh, Ukraine. Um, the British, time and again, have been in the vanguard in opening the door for others to follow, whether it's with aircraft, they sent helicopters first, everybody else followed, whether it was with tanks, whether it was with, uh, you know, anti-armor weapons, anti-air weapons. From your standpoint, how important was the decision? And Dove, I'll bring you in here in a moment because you wrote a great piece on The Hill uh, about it and what it tells us about where this administration is going to go and is not going to go. Ukraine would not be where it is without the White House and Joe Biden and the support of the United States and the marshalling of allies. On the other hand, there are also lines that the White House is not willing to cross, even if it's allowed allowing its allies to cross those lines. Right. I think what the
3: British did uh, was, again, you, you, you said we've seen them do it before. This is part of a playbook where the Brits are willing to jump out in front on something that is too controversial within the administration for the U.S. to do. Uh, and as as we all know, there's there is uh, very close consultations and discussions between the U.S. and the U.K. and other allies too, but particularly with the U.K. Uh, and um, and so this wasn't done in a vacuum. Uh, this was something that uh, I'm sure um, the administration uh, was very glad to see the Brits will, being willing to do because it takes pressure off of the U.S. and the and the, the NSC staff on uh, on providing the attackums a long range. Uh, missile. I mean, what we're talking about here is uh, is is the range of the missiles and the concerns that the White House has had that uh, if we were to provide that uh, long-range missiles to uh, to Ukraine, that they might use it to attack uh, lots of targets in Russia and that would cause an escalation. And so, there's been a lot of hand wringing over that at the White House. Uh, the Brits uh, see that that we need to get that uh, as part of the offensive. This needs to be part of the arsenal that Ukraine has to hit the rear areas, uh, to hit the command bunkers, to hit the logistics uh, that uh, Russia could call on to try to blunt the Ukrainian of, of, offensive. Uh, and so uh, the Brits said, we'll do it. U- U.S. said, okay, yeah, go ahead. And uh, and so Storm Shadow uh, will be on its way. And it is a great missile. Uh, and I'm glad that, the, uh, that, that, that Ukraine's going to have that. And and again, we'll have to see where the U.S. is going to be on attackums, but it's not enough just to do storm shadow. I hope the administration doesn't feel the pressure is off. The pressure should remain on them because attackums, uh and the ability of Ukraine to hit the rear areas of, of, of the Russian forces is critical to the offensive. Uh, and so I hope that we can see, see uh, a way towards joining the Brits in the next few months with So Let's see what happens.
0: Um, it's a you know one thousand pound uh, warhead which packs a punch. It is among the most precise weapons, and it has about a three hundred and fifty mile range. It's not quite tomahawk, uh, but it is uh, very potent, and it also has a particularly good uh, bunker busting uh, warhead uh, on it. Um, l- let me take you to the question of the Bakhmut uh, withdrawal. Right, Yevgeny Demi- uh, Prigozhin had his had a tantrum. But it looked like uh, the Wagner Group CEO. You know, I'm going to pull my troops out unless I get more ammunition. Then he said, Oh, I got more ammunition. That's really great. Uh, And then, you know, as he said, if I don't get the more ammunition, I'm going to pull out. And now all of a sudden, it seems like Russian forces uh, have pulled out. What are some of the Russian messaging that we're seeing? And how does this fall into um, the broader campaign? Because Vladimir Putin, you know, is increasingly portraying this as everybody is fighting us, that it's the world fighting Russia, that it's not about Ukraine. uh, And that he looks at you know what I mean. Whenever he hears a Donald Trump or anybody else make statements like this, he goes, "Look, I'm going to play the long game. Eventually, the Americans will lose interest in this." What's What's your sense on 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 what are some of the things that we've been seeing from our uh, from the Russians uh, in the past week or so?
3: Well, for sure, it is uh, Putin's intent to play that long game. He is certain, uh, and he has reason to believe this. Uh, he's but he is certain that he can outlast uh, both the United States as well as the Europe. Uh, in terms of helping Ukraine. Uh, and as Dove said, there's a lot riding on this offensive. Uh, and I, I I am also fearful of of this offensive being regarded and uh, too high in expectations, that we need to tamp down expect, expectations. But there is a lot riding on this. And part of that is the attention and support in the West. As far as Bakhmut is concerned, my understanding is there was also some... Uh, some of the um, regular uh, Russian troops, some of those uh, that were called up and not well-trained or well-equipped and they were thrown into the line around Bakhmut as well and that they were the first ones to actually collapse. Uh, and uh, that made the, uh, the uh, Wagner group people uh, begin to pull back too. But, but whatever it was, uh, it does look like for now, at least the fighting has subsided there. Um, And uh, we'll see. We will see what happens. Is this an opening for Ukraine to exploit? Is this an opportunity that suddenly presented itself and we'll see Ukraine forces moving through? Or is or or really is are there other bigger fish to fry in terms of the Ukraine offensive? And they're actually looking at other places along the line and not so much at Bakhmut. I mean, we'll just have to we'll have to see. Uh, But but certainly this was a defeat for Putin um, in terms of morale and in terms of propaganda. Uh, I think they wanted to deliver Bakhmut in time for the Victory Day Parade. But in fact, not only could they not deliver Bakhmut, but they couldn't deliver enough tanks for the parade. So uh, so obviously there's uh, there's there's trouble in Moscow. That's no uh, surprise to anyone. But 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 the significance of that, we'll just have to wait and see. I I know a lot of people hang, um, you know, all kinds of messages on. Uh, the parade and uh, who's sitting next to whom and uh, and then what would what did Bakhmut have to do with that, et cetera, et cetera. But I I think these messages uh, are irrelevant. Let's see what happens in terms of force redeployments that the Russians might make now uh, to get ready for the for the Ukraine offensive. I'm more concerned about that. In other words, where did those forces go? That might be pulled back from Bakhmut, are they going to be sent elsewhere along the line? I mean, are the Russians now suddenly concerned about parts of their line that might be vulnerable to the offensive and that's why they've, they're beginning to reposition troops? I mean, we just don't know. Uh, so for me, in terms of looking for signals, I'm not looking so hard uh, at, at interpreting signals, but I am looking at force deployments and we'll just have to see what happens as a result of their movements around Bakhmut
0: um uh, dove uh really quick uh you wrote a piece uh saying that we should be emulating the brits uh it ran in uh the hill uh today uh and i suggest people read it real real quick kind of give us your sense on on the situation because you also think we should be paying closer attention to what's happening in in turkey uh and you know so not only should the brits be inspiring us but we should also be concerned about what we're hearing from uh
2: the turkish uh, election and russia's role in it yeah well very quickly um I think that, yes, uh, the Brits certainly must have coordinated with us on uh, storm shadow. But to me, that increases the uh, pressure on the administration. If they're prepared to let the Brits uh, ship off a 250 or 300 kilometer system, that's, by the way, uh, an air delivered system. Why don't they agree to uh, supplement it with a ground delivered system, particularly because the Brits may not really have all that many of these storm shadows and that they're going to have to be right. supplemented the other thing of course is if we're so willing to let the Brits uh, sell tanks and and uh, and now storm shadow and and so on why are we not willing to let the allies sell f-16 uh, transfer f-16s uh, this this constant fear of uh, somehow provoking Putin who's been threatening uh, off and on as uh, some kind of nuclear explosion, uh, why we should continue to fear that is beyond my comprehension. On Turkey, I would simply say this, right? Uh, the lead, one of the uh, uh, candidates uh, for uh, the presidency dropped out, uh, which basically made it even e- uh, more likely that the leader of the opposition, Mr. Kalic Darolu, Uh, would actually beat Erdogan. Now, that election is in two days' time, and polls are notoriously inaccurate. Just ask those who predicted Trump would lose in 2016. Um, But what he has said, the the leader of the opposition, is that the Russians are meddling with this election. And that's interesting because, uh, of course, Erdogan needs uh, has this kind of special, peculiar relationship with Russia and so one would expect that Moscow would want uh, Erdogan to stay in power. If, if the opposition wins, I think you would see a very different kind of uh, Turkish approach uh, to Russia and for that matter to Ukraine. Uh, we, we just were talking about Putin waiting, uh, uh, waiting out uh, Mr. Biden. And I think Trump helped him along with his performance at CNN, where he basically said, you know, if I'm in charge, I'll settle it in a day. And uh, I'm sure Mr. Putin thinks that if it were settled in a day, it would be settled in his favor. Uh,
0: indeed. And, and the former president did laud uh, the Russian uh, president, as always. Uh, certainly uh, a deep affinity for the Russian leader. Of course, he is also grateful to the Russian leader for helping him get elected. Michael, your quick take uh, on Ukraine's support on the Hill.
1: We talked about this last week. Kevin McCarthy came out very strong in support of Ukraine uh, and, and our mission there uh, when he was in Israel. I don't think that's waning. Uh, I think the problem with Ukraine right now is out of sight, out of mind. uh, And Americans have a very short attention span. We've got a lot of other issues right now, including the debt uh, and the border. uh, And the president needs to keep this uh, at the forefront of Americans' attention. And he needs to get that Ukraine supplemental package uh, up to the Hill once he resolves this debt issue.
0: Patrick, you've been uh, extraordinarily patient, and there's a lot for us uh, to uh, discuss. Is there anything you want to weigh in on the budget craziness uh, on, uh, you know, messages Um, from uh, the Ukraine war, uh, right? I mean, I can't imagine the Chinese are happy to be seeing a back out uh, from Bakhmut. Give us your sense on all of this other stuff that we've been discussing, because I know uh, you've got cross-cutting experience that hits on every single one of these other nodes, uh, right, in your your career. Weigh in on that before we take a deeper dive into uh, the stuff that is on your purview now, which is the Asia-Pacific.
4: First on the Ukraine war in China, um, it's notable that China is dispatching its former ambassador to Russia, um, uh, Li Wei, uh, to the Ukraine, uh, and then on to Poland, France, Germany, and and Russia, I believe, is the itinerary for a week of peacemaking diplomacy to investigate whether the Chinese can broker some kind of a a ceasefire and peace arrangement. Um, This announced just after the Vienna Waltz discussions that we'll get into about uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan meeting with Wang Yi and and their delegations on each side for a couple of days this week, but it's it's instructive that China's not losing any uh, space to be active, looking like a peacemaker, uh, including on Ukraine. Um, and we and and we'll talk about that again in a little bit when I talk about uh, Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi's meeting. Um, I do think the um, question of supporting Ukraine. Right now uh, is a matter uh, that rhymes with the past American political will for conflict, Um, you know, whether it's the Afghanistan withdrawal, or we'll talk again in this program, I think a bit about uh, Vietnam 50 years after the end of the uh, US war there. Um, And I think um, Russia, China are still counting on America not having a long term. Uh, stomach for conflict and not having the ability to see things through and and having a long-term strategy. So uh, we have to be wary of that and make, make sure that we're understanding this is a long-term struggle one way or the other. Um, uh, and that peace in some ways is an illusion. Uh, war may be intermittent, but the struggle goes on and we are in a contest. Um, it's a contest actually that the, uh, you know, head EU foreign policy uh, representative, Josip Borrell, uh, Josep Barl, uh talked about this week when he said that China clearly wants to create uh, an international system uh, to its liking, um, and we must find a better strategy for for challenging China. And yet, here's China coming right back to Europe, um, trying to look like it knows the answer to the Ukraine war. So I would at least add those points uh, on dealing with Ukraine and China.
0: Um, I uh, also uh, want to point out how seriously uh, the EU is actually taking this, right? Uh, which is which is pretty impressive, um, especially in the wake of uh, Ursula von der Leyen's uh, visit, where she drew a different conclusion than apparently Emmanuel Macron did. Um, Patrick, it's a very big week. Uh, obviously, uh, Anthony Blinken met with his uh, Chinese counterpart. Uh, uh, Lloyd Austin is trying to do so um, with uh, Li Shang-Fu uh, at uh, the Shangri-La uh, Dialogue uh, next month. We've got the Quad leaders. Um, obviously, the G7 is going to be in Papua New Guinea, and after that, we're going to have uh, the U.S., uh, Japanese, Australian, and Indian leaders uh, together uh, as well. We've got the China, uh, China's new sort of internet law, that makes it illegal to share data, which has global implications. We've got Taiwan <laughs> worried now about a four-front war, as if a three-front war wasn't uh, bad enough. Anyway, well, but walk us through all of this week and what all of this means, because it's been a very dynamic week in Asia. Um, as as um, you know, every everybody is is very very concerned, especially also Chinese economic news, which might not be as po- uh, as as positive uh, as well. Make us make sense of all of this.
4: Yeah, let me just dive into the middle of it. Uh, The Global Times today uh, offering a so-called exclusive story about the 10 hours of negotiation in Vienna um, between National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi, China's top diplomat. They had a a table of five others, uh, including the translator uh, on each side. Um, And they uh, talked about, according to the uh, Global Times, uh, the following issues. First of all, the spy balloon, or the uh, civilian airship, as the Chinese put it, and Global Times put it, um, and the two sides that came out on that issue was the Chinese insisting that the U.S. had overreacted, and they wanted to make sure we were going to stop overreacting, um, and the and the Americans uh, only allowing that both sides agreed that this was an unfortunate uh, setback uh, to relations. Uh, And there's a lot of tension there back in Washington in the United States about whether the Biden administration is suppressing the FBI report on the spy balloon incident in order to pave the way for diplomacy because of the delicacy of what's happening right now. And that's a legitimate criticism, I think, of the administration. But it's also understandable if you're the executive branch, you've got your requirements to try to uh, arrange for diplomacy and you, you don't want it to be disrupted unnecessarily. Um, the other issue they talked about um, very high on the agenda uh, was Taiwan, of course. And in Taiwan, Wang Yi made it very clear, uh, according to the Global Times and all other reports, that this is the core of core issues for China. Uh, and they see the United States as revising the One China policy, and they want it to stop. Um, the Americans uh, repeated their talking points that uh, they have not changed the one China policy. The United States does not support an independent Taiwan, does not support one China, one Taiwan. Um, you know, And uh, it is um, a stalemate of, of uh, talking points there. The third point they talked about was lifting uh, restrictions. The Chinese only talked about people to people restrictions that the Americans supposedly had put in place. They didn't talk about what they had done. But interestingly, they didn't talk about the export restrictions. So it's clear that they're being very careful not to preempt that issue because they're hoping that uh, the United States doesn't move toward greater decoupling, but stays on the side of of what Jake Sullivan and the EU have talked about in terms of de-risking, being more limited, targeted. Um, they did talk about Ukraine, and of course now we have the ambassador, former ambassador to Moscow of China, uh, heading uh, heading to Ukraine. Um, and, and, of course, the Chinese tried to make it clear that they were the objective, fair and calm uh, adult in the room uh, on this issue. Um, but uh, we, we know better than that. Um, and, and then finally, um, they did not set dates for Secretary Blinken to finally come to Beijing. That was, again, delayed because of the February spy balloon incident They didn't even set dates for uh, the Commerce Secretary Raimondo or uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen to come to to China. Um, But all of those are expected to happen in the coming weeks. And they didn't even announce when Xi Jinping and and Joe Biden would have a phone call, although President Biden said uh, it's coming soon. Um, So we're left thinking that this diplomatic posturing in Vienna, this Vienna waltz, Will take us to at least the Singapore uh, twist, perhaps, with the Secretary of Defense and the Defense Minister of China. Um, Right now, the Chinese are saying there's no meeting agreed to because you Americans have slapped sanctions on our defense minister back in 2018 uh, because of uh, his uh, position in in procuring Russian weapon systems. Um, And we can't tolerate that loss of face effectively is what they're saying. Uh, But they're just looking for concessions. They're looking to put the Americans in the supplicant position. They're they're trying to portray Beijing as the victim. They're trying to show the international arena, especially the global south and Europe, but also Southeast Asia, that China is the one that's trying to do the right thing here. It's the Americans who are obstructing. Uh, But they're also worried about their economy, clearly, and, and they're worried about... Um, Xi Jinping having these reciprocal leadership visits, that is, he has to go to APEC in theory in November, which will be hosted by the Americans in San Francisco, um, and Biden will presumably be going to China. So they want to make sure that the diplomacy is setting up those leadership meetings so that Xi Jinping looks good. Um, And I think that's uh, that's where we are in this diplomatic dance. And a lot's happening over the tensions. And one of the things in China on the internet, is that the Chinese have been tolerating criticism of those advocating the use of force to uh, unify with Taiwan. Um, And so the, the forefront fear is actually coming off the Chinese internet, saying that, look, if you go in right now and try to forcibly unify Taiwan, we'll be facing not just the Taiwan, US, Japanese forces around Taiwan, But we'll be facing Korean and U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula. We'll be facing U.S. and allies in the South China Sea. We'll be facing India and U.S. allies in the Indian Ocean. Um, This would be a horrible thing to do. We shouldn't do it. be stupid. Um, And for that to be allowed to show and continue to be on the Chinese Internet, which hadn't been there before a few weeks ago, um, suggests that it has official approval, that Xi Jinping is finding it uh, advantageous to uh, say no Taiwan war now, um, let's let's do diplomacy. And let's do uh, economic issues right now, um, and I think that's where they are. They, you know, these are dual messages. Um, they haven't given up on Taiwan, but they're, they're shifting uh, tactics uh, this week at least.
0: I, I want to uh, shift uh, the discussion to uh, the 50th uh, anniversary commemoration of the end of the Vietnam uh, War. Uh, our uh, allies uh, and partners uh, obviously fought in that war as well, uh, whether it was the Australians or uh, the South uh, Koreans. Um, we should note that this war could have ended in 1968. Uh, had it not been for then candidate Richard Nixon's um, uh, effort that managed to convince the South Vietnamese they would get a better deal in the future by walking away from the deal. They negotiated with Lyndon uh, Johnson and extended the war by another uh, four to five years. Uh, it did help Nixon win the White House, uh, but it unfortunately also cost another 20,000, if not more, uh, American lives to a protracted uh, war. And we knew that in 1975, Saigon uh, fell anyway. There were some enduring lessons uh, from that uh, conflict, including uh, Iraq uh, and Afghanistan wars, where the soldiers who fought in it were, were not uh, vilified. What are the enduring lessons from your perspective? Dov, uh, let's uh, start with you and then uh, go quickly uh, around the horn. Michael, I want to get your uh, sense on this uh, as well. Uh, start us off.
2: Well, I mean, it, it was a very different uh Time uh, we had a draft, and that uh, affected the uh, population in a way that uh, our all-voluntary military simply doesn't today. One major legacy, of course, is uh, that we had a. We've been focused ever since on minimizing the losses, on minimizing casualties, and uh, even with the twenty-year war in Afghanistan and the the nearly twenty-year war in Iraq. Uh, it hasn't approached 57,000. So that's one major thing. Uh, Another lesson, which I'm not sure we've learned, uh, is to stay out of land wars in Asia. Uh, After all said and done, this was something that we had been advised before Vietnam and we got into it anyway. Uh, And I wonder more. You're you're
0: going back to De Gaulle's advice to Eisenhower. Whatever you do, don't get involved in Vietnam.
2: Right. I mean, after all said and done, the French got clobbered at the NBN food and got out of there. And then we went right back into Vietnam. And uh, and look, I mean, in in a sense, Afghanistan is a land war that uh, we got involved in and uh, totally ignored history that the Afghans, when they're not shooting at each other, they shoot at everybody else. Uh, And of course, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was chaotic and it did evoke memories of the withdrawal from Saigon. I think the most important lesson actually is to learn the lessons themselves. Uh, We tend to do a lot of lessons learned work and then we put these booklets or uh, volumes on the shelf and we don't learn our lessons at all. And I think uh, given the changing nature of war, the, the fact that we now have cyberspace, the fact that we now have space, uh, the fact that high technology keeps moving at, at a pace that we can barely keep up with, we need to be able to evaluate what lessons are meaningful and what are not. And uh, most important of all, just to pay attention to lessons. Uh, in,
0: uh, indeed. Patrick, uh, you're our Asia-Pacific uh, chair uh, on this podcast. What do you think the lessons uh, learned have been uh, and what is the kind of reflection that's happening now in Canberra and on Seoul uh, and the other nations that actually helped us uh, during during that uh, conflict
4: well there are a lot of anniversary dates and of course it was uh, April 30th uh, 50 years ago when the last American helicopter left Saigon and um, but I think there's more to war than warfare. Uh, you know, it's it's the larger political lessons that I would begin with here in the sweep of time. I mean, we have the luxury now of of talking about that. Uh, obviously, not in the battlefield of the day. Um, but um, you know, right now the United States is on the cusp of moving from a comprehensive to a strategic partnership with with a unified Vietnam. Um, so um, even though we lost in the battlefield. Um, we have, in, in many ways, won a strategic partner, albeit one that's not going to be aligned with us directly, but is also going to be a pillar for a counterweight to China. Um, and I think that is a victory of sorts. Um, it's also noteworthy that when we you know, happened into the Vietnam War and we started to intrude on it from 1950 on, um, and, and it was only after Din Ben Phu and the French defeat that um US was faced with a a tough choice about what they were going to do. And by the end of the 50s, we were in the Vietnam War. And that escalated, of course, in the mid 60s after Tonkin Gulf, and we know the rest of the story. But the the reality is, um, our fighting on the ground in, in South Vietnam and in Vietnam, was part of a larger Cold War struggle against communism and against the encroachment of Soviet and Chinese supported forces. Um, so while Ho Chi Minh may have been a nationalist, and he certainly was that, uh, he was also a communist, and he was getting support from other communist powers. Um, and I think uh, it it was our fighting there, with all the losses and all the horrors, um, that still allowed the political space for things like the Association of Southeast Asian Nations to uh, get together. And to this day, for all the problems, the imperfect uh, imperfect uh, Partners is, is the title of uh, Ambassador Scott Marcial's new book on Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a good title, they are imperfect partners, but they are our partners uh, by and large through most of Southeast Asia. And it is also the main ground where we're contesting power right now with China. What kind of order will we have in the future? Um, as for strategy, uh, you know, our technical wizardry was no match for guerrilla warfare when we had our democratic political will uh, so vulnerable. Um, and it was that ultimate vulnerability of our political will at home um, that uh, that pulled uh, the plug on, on being able to fight for this and, indeed, to look for a different strategy. I mean, we get caught up in our own uh, tools of war um, and uh, think that those are the answer because that's what we have and that's what we know, but we have to look at the larger, uh, the, the larger battlefield and, and, indeed, beyond warfare itself to say, as Clausewitz did, that war is a continuation of politics. What are the political goals here? How do we how do we best achieve those political goals? And that's really what this is all about. It's I'm not condemning Vietnam. I'm not praising Vietnam as a war, uh, the second Indochina war. Um, but I am saying that the United States needs to always uh, put our warfare uh, into the larger context of our strategy and and ultimately our political goals.
0: Jim. Uh, what do you want to uh, add uh, to this as as somebody who donned uh, your naval uh, uniform in in the years? I'm not dating you at all, but in in the uh, years after uh, you know not not very long after the Vietnam War ended?
3: Well, as a matter of fact, uh, I signed up for the draft when I turned eighteen and got my draft card and was waiting to see what happened uh, uh, to me and uh, uh, just about a year later they stop the draft. So uh so that I had that as well. But 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 I, I think with just to wrap up what everyone said and I think uh I think it was what Patrick and Dove said I agree with completely and, and the lessons learned for the politicians for the political side I think is critical. But to wrap it up I think I would say we also began to learn a lesson that we continually learn which is the limit of our power. Uh, we're not going to be able to go into a country and convert them to, to make them look like us uh, or a European power, you know or whatever we, there is a limit to what we can do. And World War II, the, the momentum from that uh, made us think uh, as the decades went on that 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 we could do what we wanted to do and, uh, and, and use our military tool if we needed to. And there was this hubris that was birthed, uh, and there was this idea that, uh, uh, that, that we could we could get done what we wanted to get done, that no one could stand in our way. And so I think Vietnam certainly was a very painful lesson that that just isn't true. We had to, you know, we relearn it every decade, it seems. And it's usually the political side that has to relearn it. Uh, the, the people in power who should know better. Uh, and, the, and the final thing I'll say is that if there's anything that Vietnam taught us and Afghanistan and particularly Iraq is that before we put our guys into harm's way, we have to be sure of why we're doing this. And we have to make sure that we don't throw their lives away on something that uh, becomes inconsequential. And I think uh, that is certainly something that has to be drummed into the minds of the political appointees. I was one. Uh, Every time that we are considering a conflict uh, and, and certainly the Vietnam War, was a real uh, lesson there that we seem to have to relearn every decade.
0: Uh, and certainly not to go on uh, autopilot. I am not being critical of anybody on this call, but once we have a tendency of starting things, we have a tendency of sort of putting them on auto- autopilot and saying, by God, we're going to do this. And if we, you know, and then we just don't end up doing it uh, and costing enormous uh, resources. So I right. hope everybody bears, certainly does bear that. Uh, in mind, Michael, I think you have a, a last point you want to make on this, uh, given uh, that there are also um, right. I mean, uh, an observation of this happening uh, up on uh, Congress uh, as well, where there are still some members who, um, you know, date from that era, including the president of the United States.
1: Uh, that's true. And I think uh, Jim and Patrick made some great points. And, and Patrick was right. There are some key political lessons. I mean, look, we have to understand that everybody doesn't think the way we do. And I think, you know, Amy Chua's book on political tribes really addresses uh, that we didn't understand uh, Ho Chi Minh and and his people, what they were fighting for and why they were fighting. And, you know, go, you can go back to the Treaty of Versailles when Ho Chi Minh went to Woodrow Wilson asking for his support. He said, if you believe in manifest destiny, you know, democracy and self-determination of people, then you should be supporting us for our independence and our freedom. And, uh, you know, and Woodrow Wilson turned him away. And I think we also have to be clear that we, when we go to fight, we have clear objectives. I've mentioned before, I worked in the Pentagon during the first Gulf War. We had three clear objectives. And when they were met, uh, the, the war was over. And Bush said, you know, one of his speeches at the end of the war, by golly, you know, I think we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome. And he was right. And yet, you know, that just over 10 years later, his son reversed all that progress. Uh, with the mistakes we made in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, again, you know, with what uh, Jim just said, trying to use our power to make people look like us and the naivete of coming in, not understanding the tribalism in Iraq and thinking that we could just make that country into a democracy and not understanding the difference between Kurds, uh, Shiites and, and Sunnis. So I think there's definitely you know, a lot of great lessons to learn to this day.
0: Uh, I would uh, point out, right, I mean, when you give the Ho Chi Minh uh, Wilson example, there is the story of Alan Dulles, you know, was was late for a dinner date, and he didn't take Lennon's call. Uh, from uh, the Helsinki uh, train station as he was heading toward, uh, you know, and, you know, could be apocryphal, uh, but it, it certainly is one of those uh, interesting historical uh, moments. Is there is there a last thought, uh, Dove, uh, that that you uh, have? Uh, as there are some who do make some parallels between Vietnam and Iraq, and you were in the beginning of uh, obviously yeah. the Iraq War, uh, and you were
2: there when Afghanistan started as well. Yes, uh, I, I would want to reinforce the point about cultural uh, dominance. Um, we, I, I think many of the people who uh, want everyone to be like us would recoil about at what I'm about to say. But the fact of the matter is this kind of practice to get everybody to be like us is Kipling-esque. It's essentially saying the white man It's white man's burden and everybody else are the great unwashed. And guess what? There are parts of the world, many parts of the world whose civilizations are five, 10 times as long as ours, who are very proud of their heritage and who just don't want to be like us. And the fact that their young people may wear New York Yankee caps or American sweatshirts and jeans does not mean that they want to be like us. And if we could only learn that lesson that one lesson, boy, would we save ourselves a lot of trouble in the future?
3: I agree uh, with I agree with Dove, one hundred thousand percent.
0: Dove makes it very easy to agree with him, uh, largely because he says smart stuff. We want to thank an extraordinary generation for their extraordinary service during the Vietnam War five decades ago, at a time that was very difficult in American history. If anybody has an opportunity to thank a Vietnam veteran for their service, they should take this opportunity to do so and to remember the service uh, and the sacrifice made by all of those who did not make it back from Southeast Asia. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. You all have uh, a great weekend, uh, great week. Look forward to having you back on again next week. A lot more to discuss that we didn't get to in part because of breaking events. And I want to thank the audience for joining us and a special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this podcast possible. We look forward to seeing you again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Have a great weekend.